This is The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. Oh, yeah. Before inflation came for the sandwich, customers could get Subway's iconic $5 footlong anywhere in the country, whether it be an airport in California or a strip mall in Florida. And like many popular meal deals, that iconic sandwich is the product of the franchise business model where individual business owners pay a licensing fee to a larger company to operate a franchise location. But the franchise model comes with its critics. Recently, some franchisees have resisted demands of corporate owners, citing smaller profits and higher operating fees. Joining us now is Lydia DePillis, an economics reporter at The New York Times. Lydia, thanks for being with us on The Takeaway. Hello, Melissa. All right. So you've been reporting on this. What are the critiques of the franchisees? What are we seeing? So first, I'll just say that these critiques aren't totally new. There's been tensions for the last couple of decades. You might remember some news around Quiznos, for example, where franchisees felt like there was too much control over their menus and pricing and that they couldn't make money. And eventually that chain went through some real contraction. But I think it's been heightened in the last few months or years by a few things. One is the introduction of private equity buyers who often want a quicker return. So they try to make changes that franchisees find onerous or not great for their bottom lines. And what it comes down to is this is an agreement, right, between the franchisor and the franchisee. And it's supposed to work out well for everybody. And when it works the way it's supposed to, that is true. But when the franchisor wants to squeeze the franchisees for more of those revenues, they can do that in a few ways. And they try to change the terms of contracts after they've been agreed to, to impose fees for things like technology and new territories or other changes that the franchisee might want to make, which are originally supposed to all be covered by your franchise fee, just the royalties that you pay for the privilege of using a proven business model. So that's why you started to see more resistance, I think, in recent months, along with greater interest from the Biden administration, which is asking the question, really, are these independent businesses or is the franchisor exerting so much control that they're, they look a little bit more like employees? We do know that because of the need for more workers coming out of the pandemic, that, you know, the labor shortage has meant that for many of these franchisees, they may be paying higher wages to their low, still low wage employees. I'm wondering if that is part of where the tension is emerging. Sure. I mean, I think from a a franchisee's perspective, they get squeezed from both sides, right? Like it's hard to to find employees who will work for the wages that they used to offer. So they are trying to raise that offer. And from from the franchisor who often wants to keep that wage rate as a share of their revenues low, you know, sometimes I've Mm -hmm. seen numbers around like 30%, right? Your total cost of labor shouldn't exceed 30% of your revenues, that sort of guideline. So this is why for a long time, actually unions have been interested in this conversation. You may remember back in the sort of early fight for 15 days, the Service Employees International Union had an interesting legal strategy to try to basically make franchisors liable for all labor violations committed by their franchisees. It's something called a joint employer standard. And the reason for that was a few, you know, multiple fold, right? They both thought that the franchisor was the ultimate caller of the shots. They determined the kind of revenues that a franchisee could make and thereby how 
well they could pay their employees and treat their employees. And the other is that if you try to unionize a large chain such as McDonald's, it's very difficult to go store by store by store, especially when the franchisor can find ways to terminate stores or punish stores if they allow that to happen. So if franchisors are declared a joint employer by, say, the National Labor Relations Board, that allows them to be unionized on a national basis rather than one by one. There are power imbalances here between franchisees and franchisors that you're sort of describing in pure economic terms. But there are other questions around race, identity, sort of geographic location, too. Is that right? The franchise industry has long prided itself on the way in which it acts as an onboard to small business ownership for many diverse entrepreneurs, many of whom may not have the advantages of a lot of startup capital or having gone to business school. So this is like, quote, business in a box that you can pretty easily get an SBA loan for and sort of build from there. So there is a whole McDonald's Franchisee Association just for Black owners. And there's a long history of that. But I want to caveat that by saying it sort of makes it more problematic when the franchisor, which is not a particularly diverse set of people, exerts a ton of control over their franchisees. And because there is that power imbalance, they can basically offer franchisees take it or leave it contracts that often, you know, a new business owner might not fully understand. These are very, very long, complicated agreements and that they can sort of go wrong in ways that you don't expect. So I think it's totally great to showcase how perhaps relatively more diverse your ownership base is relative to a a regular, normal, non-franchise small business. But it does make it worse if you're then creating perhaps worse outcomes for a lot of people when problems arise in the franchise relationship. And, you know, another aspect of this is obviously hoteliers, right? Mm -hmm. You, You may notice that if you go to a Hilton Garden Inn or a Red Roof Like a lot of them are owned by Indian American immigrants who came in the 70s and 80s, bought these hotels, and there's a very powerful, large lobbying group for them now. And they in particular feel like they've been squeezed by the franchise or hotel flags, they're called Hilton, Marriott, etc., for things like loyalty points, which cost them money, even though the guest gets a cheap room, but that's on the back of the franchisee, not the hotel flag. Or things like rebates, where they are forced to use certain vendors that then pay kickbacks to the franchisor for the privilege of selling to their entire franchisee base on the theory that that gets everybody lower rates. But a slice of that is taken by the brand name. Lydia DePillis is an economics reporter at The New York Times. Thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. right and stick with us we're gonna take a quick break but we're gonna be right back talking a little bit more about franchising and the historic connection between mcdonald's and the civil rights movement it's the takeaway i'm david remnick host of the new yorker radio hour there's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. 
This is The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. Do you remember this classic 1990s McDonald's commercial? Hey, isn't that Calvin? I haven't seen him for a while. Wonder where he's heading. I heard he got a job. Is that right? Well, it's about time he got himself together. (laughs) Now that you mention it, there is something different about him. Just goes to show you can't judge a book by its cover. McDonald's is one of the most ubiquitous franchises in the country, with over 13,000 storefronts selling more than a half billion Big Macs annually. And the franchise chain has a very particular relationship with black communities, as the Calvin commercial reminds us. Well, I'm just glad somebody believed in him enough to give him a chance. Wonder where he's working. Welcome to McDonald's. May I help you? My name is Marcia Chatlin. I'm a professor of history and African-American studies at Georgetown University. I'm the author of the book Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. Black McDonald's franchisees have become fixtures in the neighborhoods that they started in and the neighborhoods they expand in. We're talking about, you know, Chicago, Detroit, um, Kansas City, St. Louis. These are these Black communities that relied on the entry of fast food for those first jobs. They're giving money to the HBCUs. They are lobbying for Black advertising firms to come into McDonald's and create that content from the 80s, uh, for those of you old enough to remember Calvin. But I think more than anything else, they are becoming incredibly influential because they are a small cohort of Black millionaires who are the face of a way of looking at opportunity. But over this, you know, 50 plus year period of time, the accumulation of Black wealth through fast food franchising has been this really uncomfortable way of seeing the ways that economic opportunity, it comes at a high cost to communities. Let's talk about the connection between the mid-century movement for civil rights and McDonald's franchises. How are they connected? So in a nutshell, after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination in 1968, similar to the George Floyd summer we experienced in 2020, corporations wanted to be on the right side of history. They also saw a federal government that was embracing the idea of Black capitalism, federal grants for Black-owned businesses in neighborhoods that had really been ravaged, ravaged and underserved for decades. And so essentially McDonald's started to recruit African-American men at this period of time to become franchise owners in Black communities, communities where white franchise owners no longer wanted to do business, neighborhoods that had not been targeted by the fast food industry. And this was the beginning of how I argue that McDonald's became Black. Remind folks, what franchising is relative to kind of getting in in an entrepreneurial way. What are the the limitations and the possibilities there? You know, franchising is what I call the most American idea. It's owning a business without actually owning the business. It's how I say I own my house, but I really don't. The bank does. <laughs> and so essentially, franchising is an agreement with a corporate entity to do business as they direct you to. But It's risky. So whether it's COVID, whether it's the rise in the cost of groceries, whether it's challenges in recruiting employees, that franchise owner assumes a lot of those risks 
Meanwhile, the franchise parent company, they get the royalties, they determine the rents, they determine the advertising strategy. So it's a, I think it's a really high pressure business, but I think it feeds into this American dream that you don't need formal education, you just need to follow the rules and you could possibly be successful. McDonald's began working with black franchises during the civil rights movement. But in more recent times, Professor Chatlin says the company has also extended its reach into new immigrant communities to create a sense of corporate solidarity. Professor Chatlin says this trend reflects a growing demand among consumers. I think all of it's predicated on this idea that people within communities want to patronize businesses that look like them and seem familiar But I think the reality of how much you can actually own a franchise sometimes blurs those attempts at solidarity. We are seeing in in this moment um, uh, ways in which franchisees are trying to sort of push back a bit, open up more space. What does your study of the history around Black franchisees in the context of McDonald's perhaps suggest for what this moment could hold? Well, there are always conflicts over what does it mean to really give opportunity. You know, in the late 1960s, McDonald's proudly said that they were putting Black franchisees in Black neighborhoods. But over the decades, that has been the basis of racial discrimination lawsuits, because we also know that communities of color have challenges for business owners who want access to capital, who pay often higher rates for insurance, who sometimes have security needs that they have to pay for, who have to deal with the challenges of higher taxes in urban areas. And so there's this weird kind of thing where often these franchisee conflicts are about not just getting in the door, but how far you can get outside of certain parameters. And so I think it really boils down to the fact that business does not necessarily do the things that we sometimes imagine it can do, especially when we look at businesses that are owned by people of color. They don't employ in large numbers the way that we sometimes imagine or hope they do. They're often stressed with higher costs of doing business as well as the strain of the requests to be part of the community. And I think the pivot towards business from a civil rights perspective was this deep desire to see immediacy, right? To see results after long battles of victories that didn't quite pan out in improving the quality of people's lives. Ultimately, in a system of capitalism, right, you you serve a very clear goal and bottom line, which is, you know, break even, make a profit, or if you lose money, do it in the first five years, we can do it as a tax write-off, right? Like there's there's really sort of clear incentive structure. And, and is it unfair to ask um, any entity with that kind of clear incentive structure to also have an incentive of social justice, racial uplift? Are those expectations we just shouldn't have in the context of business? Business is not in the service of people, right? We are. Communities are. And so, you know, the way that people say LeBron James should just focus on basketball and dribbling, McDonald's should focus on burgers and fries. And we collectively through our tax system, through our advocacy, through our communities, we take care of each other. And the presentation of Black-owned business or, you know, people of color-owned business as a way of delivering racial justice is a fundamental flaw in our thinking about who is on deck when tragedy strikes or who needs to close these gaps. It 
isn't the role of business to do these things because business is in the service of themselves. And so when we put this kind of pressure on Black-owned business specifically, we're obscuring the fact that the reasons why we are so desperate to find answers is because the investment hasn't been there by the people who are responsible for it. And that's the federal government. Business should be taxed and they should be regulated so that we have the resources that we need for communities. Dr. Marsha Chatlin is Professor of History and African American Studies at Georgetown University. Professor Chatlin, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you.